0: The war in Ukraine led thousands of companies from Canada and other Western countries to exit the Russian market. But some people have spent more than a decade talking about the pervasive corruption in Russia and decrying Vladimir Putin as a dangerous kleptocrat. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Bill Browder, who was once Russia's largest foreign investor. Browder grew up in the US and now lives in London, and he initially flagged the corruption in Russia as part of his investment strategy. But his motives and his endgame changed after his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was detained by Russian authorities and eventually killed. Since then, Browder has campaigned on Magnitsky's behalf to pass laws that allow countries to sanction foreign individuals who commit human rights abuses or are involved in significant corruption, namely Russian oligarchs. Canada passed its own Magnitsky Act in 2017 And Browder's new book called Freezing Order documents the last 10 years of his life. As always, the interview is edited for Clarity and Brevity. Bill, welcome to the show. Great to be here. You started warning the world years ago that Putin and Russian oligarchs were dangerously corrupt. Can you tell me how you came to that conclusion, how this all started?
1: Sure. I was the largest foreign investor in Russia. I moved out there after the Berlin Wall came down, started an investment fund, which grew from nothing to become the largest foreign investment fund in the country. And I discovered that in all of the companies that I invested in, there was massive corruption. Really big, these are big Russian state-owned companies like Gazprom. And what I noticed is that the oligarchs were all stealing like an enormous amount of money out of these companies. And the crimes that were being committed at the time were really outrageous and very upsetting. And so... I decided to do something about it, which was to research how they went about doing the stealing, and then expose the people stealing through the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and other publications. And as you can imagine, that didn't befriend me. (laughs) (laughs) The the guys at the top didn't didn't feel very happy about that because they were all getting a cut. And um, in in November of 2005, after I had been living there for 10 years, and, and was managing four and a half billion dollars of money in the country. I was arrested at Sheremetyevo Airport coming into the country. I was detained at the airport for about 15 hours. And then I was deported back to London where I had originated and declared a threat to national security. Then all sorts of other terrible, really terrible things started happening.
0: The Moscow offices of Browder's fund called Hermitage Capital were raided by the police. And he ends up hiring a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to investigate why this happened. Magnitsky discovered that the reason that Russian officials raided his offices was to gain documentation so they can steal 230 million dollars in taxes that Browder's fund had paid to the Russian government. It was a very complex fraud. They went into the Russian government's coffers and stole the tax money that Browder's fund had already paid. And Magnitsky discovered this and testified against the officials involved. He refused to recant or change his story even after being detained and under threat to his life. It's just a remarkable story of integrity as a lawyer to his client, as a Russian to his country, and as a human being.
1: And in retaliation, he was arrested, tortured for 358 days, and murdered in Russian police custody on November 16, 2009. And for me, it was the the most traumatic, heartbreaking, and life-changing moment that could have ever happened to me. And I I then made a vow to go after the people who killed him to make sure they faced justice. And I would have thought that Putin would have wanted to stop the people who had stolen all the money, but instead put Sergei on trial. Three years after Sergei was murdered, Putin put him on trial, in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. He promoted all the people involved in the, or the most significant people involved in the persecution of Sergey, gave them honors. And it, and it became clear to me that Putin is not, you know, people say, oh, he's a nationalist, he's a patriot, he he cares about his country. He doesn't give a damn about his country. All he cares about is the whole kleptocratic system in which he's the biggest kleptocrat. He was a beneficiary of this crime that I've just described to you and thousands of other crimes. And that's what I've been trying to tell the world is that this guy you're dealing with is not like any other head of state. He's a mafia guy, just nothing very dramatic or impressive about him. He's just a, a thug who's stealing a lot of money that That thug who's stealing a lot of money controls military and and weapons and you know sits in summits and you know goes goes to the g20 and and all this kind of stuff and 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 we need to- we need to contain him he's a criminal he's not someone like anyone else we ever deal with and and nobody wanted to hear it because it just complicated things to acknowledge who he was and what he was and and as a result, every time he did something terrible and he's done a lot of terrible things. He, he invaded He invaded Georgia. We didn't do anything then. He, inv- he took illegally seized Crimea. We didn't do anything then. Shot down MH17 with 298 innocent people on board. We didn't do anything then. He used chem- uh, military-grade chemical weapons in Salisbury, England. We didn't do anything then. And, um, and so we, here we are in this world now where we, we have effectively enabled him, empowered him with all this latitude over the last 22 years with a feeling that he could do anything he wanted. And that's what he did in Ukraine. And and had we done something earlier, we might not be in this situation.
0: Right. And you have your new book out, Freezing Order, subtitled The True Story of Money Laundering, Murder, and Surviving Vladimir Putin's Wrath. And it makes the point that the West really enabled modern Russia because we allowed oligarchs and Putin to basically loot the Russian economy and to park those ill-gotten gains in the West in the form of yachts or expensive real estate or soccer teams, basically in our economy. And none of our leaders ever really raised a serious objection. And so it's hard to read your book and not see the West as not just being complacent, but actually being sort of complicit almost in this.
1: I agree. And, and um, I mean, one other big part of this whole export of dirty money and corruption is that all sorts of people were importing it here in the UK and Canada and US and Europe. And those a lot of the people who were financially benefiting, the Americans and the Canadians and the Brits, were well-placed people who then had a huge profit motive, the government from reacting. And so you had all these people that effectively were traitors to their countries, working on behalf of the Russians, watering down responses to all these atrocities. And so, yes, we enabled it. And and of course, Putin is 95% responsible for this horrific, murderous, violent war. But, you know, in the West, we're 5% responsible for having given him such encouragement for the last 22 years.
0: We wanted the investments, basically. In the book, you estimated that Putin has $200 billion.
1: So I, I estimate that the total money stolen from the Russian people in 22 years by Putin and the people around him was a trillion dollars. Yeah, And I, I, the way I come to that number is that that that's effectively four times the amount of money that we, we found in Dansky Bank um, of dirty money. But but more importantly, that's the same amount of money that that's in the flight capital statistics.
0: What does that mean, flight capital?
1: It doesn't mean anything, but wh- but it start, starts to mean something when you can actually see what that money is, which we had a chance to see from the Magnitsky money laundering investigation, which um, where we found. We started with $230 million, which and it led to $230 billion of dirty money flowing through Dansky Bank out of Russia over the last 22 years. And my really sort of broad brush approach to this thing is to say, okay, that's one bank, that's one Scandinavian bank with an Estonian branch. What about if we could look under the hood of Raiffeisen Bank and Deutsche Bank and, and Swedbank? And I think that, you know, you start to get a much bigger number, which would be roughly equivalent to the capital flight numbers coming out of Russia. Where do I get Putin's personal wealth from? I believe that he's the beneficial owner of 50% of the oligarch's wealth. And that number, it was like the old calculation, but based on the old calculation, that was the oligarch's wealth is $400 billion, and I multiplied that by 0.5.
0: So it's, it's an estimate in some ways. Yeah.
1: As, I, as we started the conversation, Putin doesn't hold any money in his own name. And all these agreements are, on, are not based on any documentation that you can prove.
0: Can he enjoy that money? I mean, it's not like he can go out, you know, live in London or sort of publicly spend in a lot of cities.
1: Uh, He enjoys the money very much. I mean, he has a billion, $1.4 billion house on the Black Sea. Remember the Navalny video? Yeah. It was watched more than 100 million times. I mean, he's got stuff everywhere. There's no question. He enjoys himself very nicely.
0: Yeah. Do you expect that the oligarchs will begin sort of spending their money more in the way that he does?
1: Well, I think that the oligarchs no, and can't spend anything. Some of them, most of them is frozen now.
0: Yeah, except for the stuff that's in Russia.
1: I don't think he's going to allow the oligarchs to have any money going forward. Why should he? He needs money for himself and for his, for his war and so
0: on. And you expect, though, that they'll put up with this? I mean, some of those guys are tough, too.
1: No, yeah, when it comes to him, they're all scared to death of him.
0: Let's talk about the current situation geopolitically. We have targeted oligarchs with sanctions. You have said that targeting oligarchs is essentially targeting Putin. And can you explain how that works?
1: This is really an important point. So early into the war, like about a weekend, I remember the moment, I remember exactly where I was standing when I read the, the headline that the EU was going to sanction Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister. And then very shortly after that, I believe Canada jumped into the game. And then after that, the U.S. did. And it was really remarkable, symbolic, and you know something which which should have been done a long time ago. But... It was also clear to me the moment that I read that, that that's great and, and that's important symbolism, but Putin doesn't hold any money in his own name. He, mm-hmm. he, he understands that he can't, for a, for a lot of different reasons, keep any money registered in his own name. If he did, just from a domestic standpoint, if anyone had the document, they could use it to blackmail him. You know, He, he has used those tricks himself to influence people. And so the way he keeps his money is by having people who hold it for him. And who are those people who hold it for him? These are these people we now know as the Russian oligarchs. So when we see an oligarch who's worth on paper, according to Forbes or whomever, we see them worth 20000000000 billion, they're really only worth $10 billion because the other half belongs to Vladimir Putin. And so it's really crucial to not just sanction Putin, but to sanction the oligarchs. And I would argue actually one step further, which is the oligarchs are also having their own little networks of trustees and nominees and so on. So You have to figure out who those people are as well in order to fully capture all the money that's been sort of flowing into this oligarch trustee system.
0: And that's where I think the sort of rubber meets the road, because we can all agree that the oligarch's money is corrupt and we can agree that they're sort of hiding it behind shell companies. But it takes a lot of actual evidence and sleuthing and hard work to sort of prove it up to the point. That it matches our threshold criteria so that we're not just targeting people who we believe to be corrupt. And so it seems like they've devised a convenient workaround to this. How confident are you that we're going to be able to effectively target this network?
1: Well, it all depends in which country how they've gone about sanctioning people. So if we sanction a Russian oligarch on the basis that they're corrupt, there's plenty of evidence to prove that. That's not a hard case to make. Right. If we're sanctioning Russian oligarch to say the oligarch is a trustee for Putin, that's going to be a much harder case to make because there's no document proving that. Or or the threshold has to be corruption. And so for example, the Magnitsky Act, which I've been responsible for advocating in Canada and the United States and UK and various other places, the two sort of sanctionable offenses are human rights abuse or corruption. And so I would imagine that if the Magnitsky Act had been used as the as the methodology for sanctioning these people, it would be pretty easy to prove. The way in which they've been sanctioned has been, you know, using the same tools as the Magnitsky Act, but using other instruments. And then that's open to how easy it'll be to actually seize that money. And, I mean, there's one place where it's not going to be hard to take the money, and that's the Central Bank Reserves of Russia. Russian Central Bank had, before the war started, $650 billion of reserves. That was literally Putin's war chest. And this is actually uh, an idea that was spawned in Canada by your finance minister, Christian Freeland.
0: Right. She figures into your book early on. It's like one of the first meetings you have is with Christian Freeland when you're an investor.
1: Yeah. Well, she knows her way around these oligarchs, and knows her way around Russia, and she's a good friend of mine and, and somebody who knows what she's doing. And she came up with this great idea, which is, you know, if we want to hit them hard, hit Russia, Putin hard, all the central bank money that they have is not held in Russia. Anytime it's in foreign currency, it's held at the U.S. Federal Reserve or the Bank of England or the um, European Central Bank. And that money can be frozen. And so there's $350 billion or dollar equivalent of money frozen at those institutions. And this is a much easier case to make because here you have, it's obvious that Russia has committed a crime of aggression by invading Ukraine. It's obvious that there's been damages associated with that crime of aggression. You can see it on your own television set. And we have possession of that money. And so that should be a very easy case to make in court. The oligarchs are going to be more complicated, and you can be well assured that the oligarchs are going to hire the best lawyers in the world. And those lawyers are probably, there's a major inequality of arms between those lawyers and the lawyers that work for the government. And um, I do have big worries about whether the oligarchs will find themselves able to unsanction themselves and, and uh, have their money released. And, and that would be a terrible thing if it happens. And I, I really do hope that, that uh, the governments of Canada and other governments can step up to the plate, if necessary, spend a little bit of money bringing on the best legal talent available to put these things through the court in a way that, that legitimately seizes the money. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: There have been some articles about this issue of the money that's frozen in central banks around the world. And there's some people who say we should take this $350 billion and allow Ukraine to use it to rebuild because they're going to need a lot of money to rebuild. And others, I think including the U.S., has said, we can't just take it. It would be against the law for us to do that. And not only that, if we made it legal to take Russia's money and give it to Ukraine for rebuilding, that would deter future countries from parking their assets in our country. It seems to connect to the point that for years, we've turned a blind eye to this because we want the investment.
1: I've heard this argument saying that we shouldn't give that money to Ukraine because then other countries are not going to want to keep their central bank reserves in our country and the dollar and the Canadian dollar or whatever will will no longer be reserve currencies. I don't buy that argument for several reasons. One is that this is not something that just like the U.S. is doing it by itself. If the U.S. were to do this in in concert with Canada, the EU, UK, Australia, South Korea, Japan, those are the countries that anyone wants to keep any reserve currency in. So it's not like everyone's going to all of a sudden, you know, put their money in RMB and in uh China, because that, that, you know, when you have central bank reserves, you don't want the Chinese to have have your money, and nor are people, or nor are people going to want to hold their money in, you know, Saudi rials or, you know, or Emirati um, dirhams. You know, at the end of the day, people will hold their money in countries where there's a rule of law, etc. And there's no reason why this can't be done to- totally legally. If Russia has inflicted huge damage on another country and this money belongs to Russia, this money should be seized. And and I, I, I believe that there's an absolute clear legal path to doing that, both from a legal perspective and from an incentive perspective going forward. Other countries, if anything, will will just be incentivized not to go and invade their neighbors and create murderous invasion. That's the message here, not, not that, oh, they shouldn't hold money anymore in Western central banks.
0: Yeah. In freezing order, It's striking how other countries give Russian authorities huge power. You were this internationally famous former hedge fund capitalist worth tens of millions of dollars, meeting with heads of state and top lawmakers, hiring some of the best lawyers. And yet, on several occasions, you get picked up by police on Russia's orders, or you discover at one point that your lawyers in the US have switched sides and are working for Russia. And I have to say, I couldn't help but wonder if our system of government and our rule of law, including our court system, has already sort of grown dysfunctional just because it's highly effective, maybe more effective for Russians to use than it is for someone like yourself to get justice.
1: There's no question that the systems and the institutions that are supposed to work for the purpose of good are totally dysfunctional. And you've described some of these things, you know, Interpol, international police organizations supposed to be used to catch fugitives. Instead, Interpol has members like Russia and China which use it to chase dissidents and, and critics. So that you know, so instead of chasing fugitives, you have criminals using it to chase victims. And you have in in the United States, you have this robust adversarial court system. And so the Russians then hire these lawyers who use things like subpoenas to, like, you know, I was being chased by my former lawyer. His name was John Moscow. After he switched sides, and he was chasing me with these subpoenas, where he basically wanted to have me hand over all my information about my personal security all my travel records. What possible use could that be in a court case? But that, that's what's allowed under U.S. discovery rules. So I'm going to hand that over to the Russian government so they can use it to try to kill me. And at the time, we, we had a judge who was 83 years old and couldn't understand what was going on and granted it. And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't work in the world as it should. And I've seen it in every different way. And it's pretty extraordinary.
0: It was remarkable because like, you know, during the Cold War, we heard a lot about sort of dysfunctional Soviet bureaucracy where there were, you know, sham courts. And it, I mean, I thought our court system was designed to prevent against lawyer switching sides or, you know, some of these abuses. Do you think it was always this bad or do you think something has changed in the world?
1: No, I think it's always been this bad. And, and bad people have found the loopholes to use all these institutions and court systems and other things. And, and And and, and there's a whole sort of cadre of of lawyers and investigators and specialists and PR firms that know how to work for dictators and kleptocrats and mafia bosses, and they're active all over the world. And here in the UK where I live, a good friend of mine wrote a book called Putin's People. Her name is Catherine Delton. And um, and she was then uh, attacked by four oligarchs simultaneously in the libel courts here. She she barely had two pennies rubbed together, and she was being sued four different. She had to defend four different lawsuits from four different oligarchs. How could that possibly be fair, right? Or in the public interest, or the interests of justice? And she had to spend a year and a half of her life, and the publishing company, and everyone else, you know, trying to fend off this attack, just to basically shut up somebody who was talking about Putin's corruption.
0: Yeah. So what does that tell us? Like, we've spent all this time telling ourselves that we're the freest countries in the world. That's why people want to come here. Do you think we're just being Pollyanna-ish by believing the best about ourselves?
1: Indeed. Most people have almost childish views of what government and the institutions should be doing for us. It doesn't work that way. And it and, uh, doesn't mean it always has to be that way. I mean, a lot of this stuff can be reformed. But, I mean, in every country, I could, I could point to really shocking, like Canada. Um, I don't believe they've ever done an economic crimes prosecution in the country of Canada against Russians since, you know, since the end of the Cold War. And there's been plenty of economic crimes and plenty of dirty money from Russia in Canada. And, uh, you know, what does that say? You know, why why is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or patrol or whatever you call them (laughs) unable to do that? Who's going to lose their job over that? Nobody's going to lose their job over the fact that no prosecutions have been done. They only lose their job if they do a prosecution and
0: lose. So to go back to the sanctions, You said, I think, in another interview that there's been a sea change for the West, because until now, we've just kind of ignored Russia's corruption. Are you hopeful?
1: Well, I mean, definitely every door that was closed to me is now swinging wide open. I'm hopeful, but I'm also realistic in in, in knowing that, you know, I I can remember uh, everyone was talking about uh, the hundreds of thousands of Syrians that were killed by Assad. And and now who's talking about Assad? He's still in power. In fact, he just rejoined Interpol. And so... I'm, I'm a bit scared that we're all going to stop caring about Ukraine. We're going to stop caring about Putin. And then there'll be these voices saying, we need to reengage with him. And he'll have committed these atrocities and destroyed the lives of, of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of Ukrainians, dead children, women, hospitals bombed. And I, I, I'm scared to death that we're going to somehow give Putin a pass the way that we've effectively done with Assad.
0: Wow. If the war with Ukraine drags on, like for many years. If we target all the oligarchs, what happens eventually?
1: Well, the money that they've accumulated over the last 30 years, hopefully that no longer belongs to them. But at the same time, Russia continues to sell a billion dollars of oil and gas every day. And that money is supporting this dictatorship and this war. And it's actually more money that they've earned this year than they earned last year for oil and gas. And so we're really... You know, they could carry on for a very long time with a war economy with their oil. And, you know, Putin can become a sort of Kim Jong-un type of pariah and carry on doing really terrible things. And that's the most likely scenario. Having said that, this is such a dynamic situation. And and there's so many things that are unexpected. Uh, Success of the Ukrainian military in sending off the Russians is something nobody anticipated. The fact that we're now supplying Ukrainians with really serious offensive weapons, is something no one would have even contemplated a few months ago. And all this can change the probabilities very dramatically. And I think that, that it will change the outcome of this war if we carry on supporting the Ukrainians. And, and and if the Ukrainians win, if they win this war, Putin won't be allowed to be president anymore by the Russian people. Because one thing that they can't stand is a loser. I mean, they, 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 they're okay with human rights abuse, but they can't stand the weak loser. And that, that will be the end of Putin. And so that, that has to be our strategy.
0: Bill, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's our show this week. Thank you to my guest, Bill Browder, author of the new book, Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Thank you for listening to Down to Business and supporting the show. It would not have been possible without the team. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music and executive produced the show. Pam Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with a new episode next week. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.